You're listening to the North Canton Chapel podcast. Thank you for joining us today. The North Canton Chapel exists to make much of Jesus every day to everyone. It's our prayer that this podcast will equip you to do just that. We believe that there's nothing like the church united together in gospel community. We'd love if you'd stop in and say hello in person if you're in our neighborhood. Our gathering times are at 9 and 10.30 a.m. Thank you again for joining us today. Let's listen in. Did you ever have like one of those small little details that you just blew right past and it caused a bigger problem than you ever thought it would? Here's what happened this last week in the Marshall family, okay? So like Wednesday night, I got a call from Mandy. She says, hey, I've got to drive myself to the ER. What's going on? She goes, it's okay. Sliced my finger. I got to go get stitches. I'm going to be at Altman on Washington Square. I'm going to be okay. I'm like, "Uh, uh, wait, what's going on, right? So I was like, well, I'm going to head home from work. I'm like, driving yourself? Okay. She goes, no, I'm fine. No problem. So on my way home, I get a phone call from Altman Urgent Care at Washington Square. And they say, hi, um, my name is so-and-so at Altman. And uh, your wife, Mandy, is here. Uh, She's here getting sutures in her finger. Uh, She's actually passed out. And we need you to come because she can't drive herself home, and I'm like, oh my gosh, right? So my brain kicks into overdrive. I'm like, all right, call up Pastor Dave. Dave and Carol live like four minutes down the road from us. I'm like, Dave, I need you to come and get me. I gotta get to the hospital because Mandy sliced her finger open. She's got stitches. She's passed out. I'm freaking out. Dave, come and get me. I gotta go to the hospital. He's like, all right, man, I'm coming. So Dave comes, comes to my house. We start booking it. He goes, where's she at? I'm like, she's at Mercy in Oakwood Square. So we're booking it over to Oakwood Square. I get there. Lights are off. Her car is not in the parking lot. I'm going, no, what's happening? Not wanting to look like an idiot, I realized they called me on my phone. Altman did. So I pull up my phone. I'm like, oh, yeah, number. Uh, Yeah, my name's Brandon. Um, My wife's there. What's your address again? I'm just double checking, make sure I'm going to the right place. And so they tell me. 2600 6th Street on Tusk. Okay, I'm coming, I'm coming. So we hop on the barrel down market, get on 62, 62, 77 South, get off on Tusk, and we're right there at Altman. I walk into the ER, and the front receptionist there at Altman, I say, hey, my wife Mandy's here. She's passed out. I need help. And they're like, what's her name? Like, Marshall. She's like, no one's here. Her name Marshall. I'm like, oh my goodness. So at this point, I pick up my phone, and I actually called Mandy. <laughs> A half hour later, and like, she's probably conscious by now, because she's in a place that cares for her much more than I clearly do. And so I called her, and I said, where are you? She goes, I'm at Altman. I'm like, yeah, I know. I am too. She goes, Washington Square. And I'm like, I'll be there in like 10 minutes. (laughs) She's fine. 12 stitches. Idiot husband. Here's the thing. I think that is a lot like our relationship with God sometimes. Seriously. We want so badly to care and to get it right And we are so emotionally eager to charge in that we forget some of the most basic, simple pieces of information. So we kind of end up where we're sort of supposed to go, maybe. So this morning starts this five-week series called Back to Basics. I know we did not stage that whole story as an opening metaphor for this series. It just sort of happened that way. So here's where we're going the next five weeks. Um, I really believe that there is no more powerful, um, no more uh, essential, and probably no more confusing tool at our disposal as Christians than the Word of God. This is a book of 66 books written in dead languages. There's all these translations. What do I do with this thing? How do I read it? 
Is it really even essential to equip me to live the life that God wants me to live? And because we don't dive into it, and since we don't really know what to do with it, it kind of gets shelved. And it becomes this detached thing. So this morning, I'm going to start this series, and here's the idea. We're going to do five weeks on just like the basics of the Bible. How do you study this thing? What is it? How did we get it? How do we know what's here is supposed to be here? Is there anything missing? What about all these translations? What about discrepancies? We're going to hit some of that this morning. We're going to talk about how do I study it over the next few weeks. And then what we're going to do is we're going to take these five weeks and we're going to put them to work this summer. We're going to do like a 10 or 12 week series through the book of First John. where We're going to take everything we're going to learn the next five weeks and we're going to put it road, or rubber meets the road for all summer. All right, so that's where we're going. I want to let you know. So today we're going to start off in Psalm 19. Psalm 19. We're going to be here for probably about 10 minutes, and then we're going to take the last half of our message this morning to answer what I would say are six crucial questions or critical questions related to God's word. Psalm 19. This psalm begins in the wide expanse of a mountaintop, and it ends in the quiet of a prayer room. David starts with his arms wide open, eyes raised in declaration, and then he takes us to this bent knees, hands folded submission. The skies are wide in verse 1, but by verse 14, we're in this low, quiet, humble, still place. Psalm 19, it breaks into three parts. Part 1, let's take a look right in verse 1. Here's what David says. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There's no speech, there are no words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving its chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy." Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them. There's nothing hidden from its heat. This is this part one about this idea of God's revelation, God's disclosure to himself. And if you're taking notes, this is called general revelation. It's a big theological word. This is God showing the same thing about himself to everybody on earth. No matter where they live, when they live, how they live, what language they speak, God reveals things about himself. This is what Ecclesiastes means when it says that God has set eternity into the heart of man. What does that mean? It means there's something inside of us when we see a sunset or we interact with the concepts and the pictures that David wrote here that we go, oh my gosh, look how beautiful this thing is. From like the holiest of saints to the most rank sinner, everybody has this thing inside of them that goes, wow, what is this? You can hear a great piece of music and the orchestra swells to this great crescendo, right? You watch a great film or you read a great book and you have this meaningful conversation with a friend and something inside of you either swells up with joy or breaks in tears. Everybody, regardless of what they believe about God, has something inside of them. What is that something? That's that image of God inside of us that is marred from the fall But general revelation speaks to this. 
C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, I find in myself a desire that cannot be met by anything in this world. And the only possibility is that I was made for another world. Isn't that a great comment? This is general revelation, this inner sense that there must be something else. And that's what David is talking about in the first six verses of Psalm 19. Now, here's the catch. General revelation is enough to know that God exists, but it's not saving knowledge. It's enough to rouse my hunger for something bigger, but not to satisfy it. It's enough to ask the question, but never provide the answer. It's lock without a key. So what comes next? Part two, special revelation. As we pay attention to this part, pay attention to the words that David uses. He moves from general to special. Take a look in verse seven. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. Testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Don't you see how David now moves from the sublimity of a sunset to this really narrow disclosure of God? This is called special revelation. It means that God chose to reveal himself in his written word. That's what David's talking about here. And it's worth noting that the law, commandments, testimony, rules, all those words that David has in mind are the first five books of the Bible because that's all David had. But the principle is anything and everything that God says, whether it comes down of a mountain on tablets of stone or it comes from the mouth of Jesus is equally true and pure and good and perfect. Back to the text just for a minute. I hope you caught this. This is just great poetry. <laughs> He's using a form of Hebrew poetry here called parallelism. Did you catch it? He says, this is this and it does this. He said that six times where he says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. And he does that rhythm six times just in these couple of verses. Simple, clean, and really powerful. And if you have a hard copy of God's word with you, or if you're looking on your phone, just take a look at those six words. He says there's pure, or perfect, sure, right, pure, clean, and true. And I have two immediate reactions when I hear those words, just that list all put together. My first reaction is, that is not this world. Perfect? Like, nothing's perfect out there. Thanks, Adam and Eve. Hope you enjoyed that apple bite. Ever since then, nothing is perfect. Everything's got a wrinkle in it. Sure? Nothing is sure. We're not guaranteed another breath. How about right? Well, show me somebody who thinks they're right, and I'll show you somebody who disagrees. Pure? That's not even a question. Not out there. Are you kidding me? Clean? Not by a long shot. True? Isn't that the question of the day? Like, how do I know what's true anymore? I can't trust anything. <laughs> 
That's my first reaction, that God's special revelation is so much different than the world in the hands of man. We have not done a good job. But then I have a second, stronger, more sickening reaction. As I look at all six of those words, and it doesn't describe the world, it also doesn't describe me. Like, I'm not perfect. Know that. I'm not sure. I'm not right. I'm not pure. I'm not clean. I'm not true. That can be overwhelming to sit with all six of those words and go, well, whatever God is, I am clearly not. If you're honest, now what's the point of all that? In light of God's perfection, I see the darkness of my imperfection. Just the faintest glimmer of God's goodness, and I'm overwhelmed by my ungoodness. The biggest problems of my world aren't out there. Where are they? They're in here. And so I'm left in this quandary, this tension between who I know God is and the way his world was created and then the way I am and the mess that I've made, even in my little corner of it. And it's maddening. Like, God, you're this, and I'm this, and your word convicts me. What do I do? And that's part number three of Psalm 119. You've got general revelation, special revelation, and then my reaction or my response. Listen to what David says now in verse 12. Thinking on God, he says, Who can discern his errors? And then he prays. He says, declare me innocent from my hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. What a good word that is. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth, things I say, and the meditation of my heart, the things I obsess over in the quiet, let those things be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock, and my redeemer. So the tension brought about by part one and part two pushed David to unfold this beautiful prayer. God, declare me innocent. Please, God, keep me back from these things that rule over me. Don't let them rule over me, God. And then let the things that I say and the things that I think, let these be good, pleasing things to you, God. What's he asking? God, fix me. I have a problem, Lord, and it's me and I need fixed. So yes, in the light of God's perfection, I see the darkness of my imperfection. But you know what else I see, guys? I also see God's goodness in there. I see his mercy. I see his love. (laughs) Because you know this story. Who wrote this? David. You know David. David the giant killer. David the shepherd boy, David the king, David the adulterer, David the murderer, David the liar, David the coward. See, guys, God's perfection and God's goodness are not opposites. He's perfectly holy and perfectly loving. He's perfectly just and perfectly merciful. He is justified in his wrath and generous in his grace. Hundreds of years later, the Apostle Paul would echo this sentiment when he wrote, God demonstrates his own love for us in this while we were yet 
sinners, Christ died for us. While we were yet sinners. Wow. That means that in the cross, all that God asks from us, he provides for us. That in the cross, you're not defined by your imperfection, but by God's perfection. That you can now, a sinful person, be sinless. That the dirty could become holy. That the profane could become clean. That the lost sheep and the wayward son can be brought home. Who says there's no gospel in the Old Testament? (laughs) So let's put this together. God's general revelation, his created world beautiful but broken. God's special revelation, his written word. And then you put it all in a blender and you hit puree and my response is, God, fix me. So, what I want to do, I want to take the next 20 minutes or so um, and I want to get into this spot where we're going to ask six very critical questions of God's word. Because I just gave you, hey, it's true, it's perfect, it's all this stuff. And in the back of our minds, right, anytime you talk about Bible, there's always questions, right? Even in church. Because a lot of you have questions about God's word. And if I could peer into your imaginations for a minute, there are questions that you might probably even be afraid to ask because you're not perceiving that they're even safe to ask in church. And so, like, I want to just raise them and give them voice so that you don't have to. Because um, what I really want for us as a church, I want us to be informed by this word. Because I deeply believe that this matters. And I deeply believe that the God of the universe wants to communicate to you through this. And so I want to smooth over some of these barriers to entry that I know so many of us have. I know I have over the years. So... Six questions, here we go. Question number one, how did we end up with the books that we have? Do you ever ask that question? 66 books in this thing, how do they all get there? How can I make sure that nothing's missing, right? That's a great question because if you're gonna believe this thing, you really wanna know what it is. So maybe the even deeper question is, how can I trust what's here? So first, we're gonna talk about the transmission process. How did we get it? How does this even get written down? Here's the process. It's going to be massively oversimplified because we've only got so much time this morning. Holy Spirit inspired writers. The writers wrote down on papyrus, and then those papyri were copied, and then those copies were circulated. They were passed around. Massive oversimplification. Okay, but that's the idea. How about the Old Testament? What's the Old Testament? The Old Testament is a group of books, three different chunks. The first is called the Law. This is also called the books of Moses, or the Pentateuch. Penta meaning five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Moses wrote all of that. That's called the Law. It's the oldest portion of the New Testament. Then we have the the Old Testament. Then we have the second chunk called the Prophets. Prophets. These were men that God used to call his people back to his truth. Then after the prophets, we have the writings. This is all the poetry, right? This is Job and Psalms, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, and Song of Songs. All of that is written in Hebrew, and it's wrapped up by about 400 AD, give or take, just to put it on a timeline for you. Then there's the New Testament, 27 books. There's Gospels, Acts, Letters, and the book of Revelation. 
book of Revelation is kind of an outlier. It's the weird one. All of that is wrapped up roughly by 90 AD, roughly, just to put it on a timeline for you. So these things are all originally written down on papyrus, and then they eventually got copied onto scrolls, and then eventually scrolls to paper, and then to paper to bound into books, and then on your phone. It's kind of an amazing process when you really think about it. Who would have thought? You could tell the Apostle Paul you'd have everything in the pocket. It's crazy. So um, this is just an odd thing, but I'll throw this out there. I'm sorry to disappoint you. We have no original manuscripts out there. No one's ever found one because they're pretty old. So if you're a student here this morning and you want to go into biblical archaeology, like, have at it. Go dig around in the sands over there and find something. The closest thing we've got is the Dead Sea Scrolls for the Old Testament and, like, a business card size portion of the Gospel of John for the New Testament. So that's that. Um, so how, what's in and what's out? Let's stay with this question a little bit further. How do we get these things? There's four criteria for what makes it into the canon of Scripture. Okay, and we're going to look primarily at the New Testament for just a second here. I just want to give these to you. First off, it had to be written by an apostle or somebody who walked with God, knew Jesus. So when you look at the Gospels, these are written by people who either knew Jesus personally or interviewed people who did in the case of Luke. Second criteria is it has to be unified. It can't, it can't contradict something that's already written that we know about truth. The Old Testament is like the seedbed out of which grew the New Testament, and both of these things correlate. This business of God's angry in the Old Testament, but he's nice in the New Testament? Nope. We'll talk about why that's a misnomer next week a little bit. But there were books that were suggested, especially in the early church, that went against, went, went against crucial New Testament dogmas. We talked about that last week. And so people were saying, like, well, maybe we're not justified by faith alone. Maybe there's other stuff we have to do. And so the early church looked at that doctrine and said, nope, that goes against everything we know about God's character. So that's that second criteria, it has to be unified. Third one, did it enjoy universal acceptance? Right? So while people were thinking about scripture and what this thing actually said, it had to jive with historical fact. Okay, it does us really well to know that most of the New Testament documents especially came right after the life of Christ. And so people knew what happened. It'd be like if I were going to write a book right now and told you that Ronald Reagan landed on the moon. You'd be like, that, that did not happen, right? And so clearly that is not coming truth. Last piece of criteria. Does it have a self-authenticating or a divine nature to it? So when I read this, does the Holy Spirit convict me of sin? Does the Holy Spirit use this to speak to me, right? I can read Christian books all day long, I can read devotionals from Christian thinkers and pastors all day long. You can listen to me speak. But my word is not nearly as weighty as this is. This does something to my soul that Christian literature doesn't. And so those are those four criteria. That's how we got what we have. There's plenty more we can talk about here. But we can rest confidently knowing that there's nothing here that shouldn't be. And there's nothing missing that should be. So that's this first question. Second question, what about discrepancies? Okay, so all those hundreds of manuscripts being copied and passed around, surely there's some mistake somewhere. Okay, we're going to do a quick straw poll in this room, and those of you watching online, you can do this the same thing. What is the correct way to spell gray? Think, hang on. Oh, really? It's going to be like that this morning. 
G-R-A-Y, G-R-E-Y. How many of you are G-R-A-Y people? Okay, how many of you are G-R-E-Y people? Oh my gosh, church split. Let's do it. Here's the thing. Now if I say gray, or if I say gray, are you picturing a different color? Probably not. Here's the truth, you're both right. According to Merriam-Webster, G-R-E-Y is more British English, the Queen's English, so pat yourself on the back for being fancy. G-R-A-Y is more American English, so pat yourself on the back for being revolutionist. That's the way to go. That right there is like 90% of discrepancies between biblical manuscripts, ancient copies. There are discrepancies, so I hate to pop your little bubble there. They have nothing to do with meaning. Okay? There are these little letters that get twisted around. But here's the real question. Do, does gray or gray mean anything different? No. As the centuries rolled on, there were scribal errors. I feel like I need to tell you that. Now, I recognize that that statement can be very unnerving. It can cause some doubt and some fear to creep in. Like, well, how do I know this is exactly what God wants for me? You're telling me it's God's word, and now you're telling me that some scribe in some monastery in the 400s spelled gray wrong? <laughs> My path to comfort and clarity on this issue really boils down to two things. I've got to understand God's sovereignty, and I've got to understand my real need. First, God's sovereignty. Let me give you a piece of comfort. God's sovereignty was definitely over the transmission of his word. He oversaw every one of the original manuscripts, and he is still sovereign when it's being translated. His sovereignty didn't stop. He is just as sovereign then as he was now. He orders his world and he wants to be known by his people. So it's very unlikely and out of God's character that he would go, eh, I don't really care how you translate it. God is still sovereign. Second thing, though, actually has to do with my real need. And here's what I mean. New Testament scholar Randy Leedy puts it like this. He says, if we had the originals themselves, the very pieces of papyrus that Paul used to compose Romans and Ephesians, or if no copies contained any discrepancies, unlocking the Bible's power would still require us to do exactly what we do now. Search the scripture's wisdom for hidden treasure, interpret it carefully, compare scripture with scripture, and make relevant personal application. Let's stop for a second. Could you imagine what that would be like to be sitting in your first century Corinthian house church and someone rides in with a letter from the Apostle Paul, and you sit around in your living room by candlelight, and you read about how God's calling us to be one body and, and how the Holy Spirit seals us. But even if you agree with what it says, you still have the harder work of determining what it means. Leedy picks it up like this. My own weaknesses as a reader expose me to far more significant misunderstanding than manuscripts do. For by far the greatest problem that God must overcome in order to talk to me are within me, not in the transmission process. Nail on the head. Here's how I take that for me. I can study, I can pick, and you can do Greek textual criticism if you want. I have, it feels like a root canal. <laughs> Sorry for you dentists. 
But the biggest problem is not, let me make sure I get this right. Let me make sure I get this right. Because I have a rebellious heart, and I resist God. Without the cross, I'm his enemy. And so I say, change my heart, fix my mind, convert my affections, and call me yours. So yeah, there are minor discrepancies between gray and gray, but they are minor compared to my rebellious heart. Question number three. Is God still speaking? How do I know that we're done? So the hairs stand up on my neck a little bit whenever someone starts a sentence with, God told me. Because whenever they start a sentence like that, there's this assumption that sounds like this. Like, oh my gosh, man, this person walks so close with God, he speaks with them directly, audibly. Like, I better listen up, holy smokes. Something we've got to realize. Cults don't get started by, here, drink this Kool-Aid. Cults get started by somebody of profound spiritual influence, leveraging that spiritual influence in a way that causes us to question the sufficiency of what God has already said. Quick story. About 170 AD, there was this charismatic young leader named Montanus. He's a local boy, made good, had a $400 haircut, teeth whitening treatment, exploding social media presence. He's that dude, okay? And he was lighting up his hometown, Everybody loved to come see this guy speak. And he taught a couple of things that were really, really off. First off, he said there are two different classes of believers, the ordinary believers and the spiritual ones. And then he said that the way to become a spiritual one is you've got to have this ecstatic experience in the spirit where, like, you speak in tongues, you fall on the floor and quiver, or you can do something like that. Now, a red flag should have come up in your mind when I said that. Then, to go even further, he said, I am now God's mouthpiece. And the Holy Spirit is going to speak through me. Okay, that's problematic. And there are leaders like that all the time today. They're initially very interesting, ultimately very, very terrifying. Here's what happened next, though. The early church got together and compared what Montanus was saying up against what God had already said. They went to Ephesians 4, what we looked at last week. And they said, well, wait, Paul says we're one body with one spirit with lots of gifts. This guy's saying something different. This guy's wrong. Do you see why biblical literacy is so important? We don't know our Bible so we can get smarter. We know our Bible so that we can protect against that kind of stuff. So when someone runs to you and says, God told me, God showed me, God gave me, your first instinct should be run to scripture and say, where? (laughs) Show me. But don't get me wrong, the Holy Spirit does influence our thinking and guide our decision making. But we go wrong when we fail to test whatever this person is saying against what God has already said. Here's the principle. God does, or the, the church right now does not need new revelation. The church needs clear illumination. Here's what that means. We should not expect the Holy Spirit to give us something new. The Holy Spirit shines his light on what God has already said. One final thought, and I'll give you this as a comfort It seems very unlikely to me that God in his sovereignty would allow his church to exist for 2,000 years seeking him and serving him and then all of a sudden there's this brand new piece of revelation coming from a guy in Hackensack, New Jersey. You're like, we've been missing this crucial doctrine for 2,000 years? So God's character is to care for his church and his people and that's why he has written something that is perfectly spoken. Question number four. Should I take everything in the Bible literally? 
It's a great question. It's a tough one because it begs another question. What do you mean by literally? John, I'm going to put you on the spot real quick. John, how old are you? 63. 63. No, you're not. No, you're not. John's like, yes, I am. You want to fight about it? You're not 63. You're 63 in so many months and so many days and so many hours and so many minutes. You didn't answer me literally, John. John's like, that's it, parking lot, afterward, you and me. (laughs) Here's the idea behind literally, okay? He did answer me literally. He answered me the way he was supposed to answer me, right? Answering something literally means taking it according to the author's original intention. Here's the story. 1616, the Roman Inquisition, whose job it was to ferret out heretics, the people who went against the Catholic Church's dogma, doctrine, and preferences, was in full, in full swing. They found this guy named Galileo. Galileo had this problem, because Galileo loved God. As he looked through his telescope and he did his astronomy, he realized something, that maybe the Earth is not the center of the universe. Well, that went against Catholic Church teaching at the time. He said, building off of Copernicus, that the sun was the center of the universe and the earth revolved around that. He was tried as a heretic. All of his books were burned and he spent the rest of his life under house arrest where he died nine years later in 1642. Now here's the crazy thing. Galileo loved God. He marveled at God's creation as he dreamed of a day where the science that he loved could support the faith that saved him, and even said this. This is a great quote. He says, God is known in nature by his works and by doctrine in his revealed word. Doesn't that sound like Psalm 19? Like high view of general revelation, high view of special revelation. Welcome to North Canton Chapel. But this makes the thinking person go, well, how did things get so off? Heretic? Really? How did the church get so sideways? Well, at the risk of undue sympathy, there's actually... (laughs) a noble but misguided desire. Church at the time read passages like Psalm 119.9 that says, you laid the earth on its foundations and it stands firm. It will not be moved. So they read things like that and said, well, we've kind of got a problem here, Galileo. Uh, We want to take God's word literally and so we're sort of stuck. This guy must be wrong. Now what is that? They missed something really simple, really basic, and really crucial. Taking the Bible literally means taking it according to the author's original intention. If I walk outside with you and I say, the sky is crying, what do I mean? It's May in Ohio. (laughs) If I say the river laughs, what does that mean? It's spilling over the rocks. I'm so hungry I could eat a... Anybody ever done that? No. Why? Because it's poetry. And so the problem isn't God's word. The problem is you just misinterpreted it. God doesn't have the problem. You just don't know how to read poetry. So should you take God's word literally? Literally, absolutely you should. But part of what that means is understanding the author's original intention. If I could go back to 1633 and I had those influences, I would say those passages are not stuffy textbooks trying to teach us about what revolves around what. They're about the one who made everything. This isn't about what planet spins around what planet or what holds the cosmos together. It's about the person who holds the cosmos together. 
And so biblical literacy matters. You'll be glad to know the church um, in Rome has changed its teaching since then. 1992, dead serious, is when they officially changed the teaching that, that the sun's the center of the universe. Fifth grade. Here's what you need to remember. Scripture has one point, one agenda, one connecting thread, and it's Christ. One thing we are meant to see, one person we are meant to know. And so seeking the true meaning of God's word doesn't undermine my confidence in it. It actually supports my confidence in it. Question number five. I'm going to go quick. How do we get all these versions? What makes a reliable version? Let's back up. Remember the composition. Holy Spirit inspired writers. The writers wrote. And then those manuscripts were eventually translated. And that's where the tension lies. Linguistic principle for you. Anytime you translate from one language to another language, you take a risk. It's just a principle out there. It's true when you go from French to English, English to Spanish, Spanish to German, whatever. Those languages, by the way, they all share a common linguistic family. They're romance languages, which is why our high schools teach a lot of those languages. Because if you get one, you can get the other one, maybe. But the problem is the Bible comes from, a whole diff- comes from a different linguistic family, two different linguistic families, and none, neither of them are like English. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, that's Afro-Asiatic, and the Greek is written in Indo-European language families. It's all different. You ever seen Hebrew? Looks like somebody sneezed on a piece of paper. You're like, what is this thing? I can't make sense of this. It goes the other direction. And like, where are the letters? It just looks like artwork. It's a completely different language. So to wrap your arms around all of that and try and push it out in a modern English translation is to try to find the similarity between like a carrot and a carburetor. It's like, what is this thing? It makes no, there's nothing similar here. Translation is a phenomenally complex process that takes diligence and time and focus and care. But before we get into the the modern English thing, I I do need to pull off and say something here. Um, It's at this point that very well-meaning pastors and professors and teachers and scholars make a very unintentional and harmful um, conclusion. And it it was done to me when I was trying to study God's word. And the implication is, if you really want to know what God says, you need to go study Greek and Hebrew. Otherwise, don't bother. Okay, that's wrong. Here's why that myth needs to get busted. Because the amount of faithful work and diligent scholarship behind the pages of our modern English Bibles is phenomenally complex and now has become phenomenally accurate. This is really, really tough. But it's like holding the sublime beauty of the Sistine Chapel and the obsessive complexity of a Mars rover in your hands. This is beautiful and complex. So what are the differences in our modern translations? Let's just hit this really quick. And we'll probably have to close here in a minute. Modern translations fall into three different categories. First is like a word-for-word translation. This would be the New American Standard or the English Standard Version. Word-for-word, like trying to get it one-to-one as close as possible. Word-for-word, okay? Then, if you go one click this way, you've got phrase-by-phrase. Okay, this would be like the NIV, or the Holman Christian Standard, or something like that. This is where somebody, a good translator who knows languages, says, okay, let's take this phrase, these two or three words, and let's translate the two or three words. Then if you move one click further this way, you've got like a thought-for-thought translation, or an idea-for-idea translation. 
This is like the Living Bible or the Message, right? The interpreter or the, the, the translator is also doing a little bit of interpretation there, and they're mostly very accurate. But I want you to understand those three kind of things exist. Think about them on a spectrum. So enough for the theory. What do we recommend? So here at North Canton Chapel, we preach from, lead from, and teach from the ESV, the English Standard Version. Okay? It's what's in the Bible under the seat in front of you. It's what's on the screens. It's what I preach from. And the reason I like it is for one reason. Balance. It's really faithful to the original languages, but it's also really readable. You can sit back and enjoy reading it. It's not so weirdly constructed that, like, I can't understand what that word means. And so it's a good translation. But like any tool, it's knowing what you have and knowing how to use it that matters. Question six, we're going to have to wait for next week. Question six is, how do I know that this isn't all just subjective? How do I get meaning from this thing? We're going to have to wait for next week on that one. Here's my hope for you. We've said this a couple of times in the last few weeks, but I want to hit it again. A chaotic world needs a strong church. And I really believe, we just finished up this series on the Holy Spirit. In case you didn't figure it out, it's super intentional. The Holy Spirit illuminates God's word, and so that's why we are where we are right now. In the coming weeks, I do want to lead you guys on a little bit of a journey. We're going to talk about how we get meaning from this thing. How do you establish a good quiet time? What does it mean to actually sit and read? What should I expect? Because I believe what's God, what God's word actually says, that we don't live by bread alone. What do we live by? Every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Little King James coming back there for you. I memorized that one as a kid. <laughs> Still in there. If you don't know the God who wrote this Bible, or if you don't know that you know, maybe he exists, maybe not. <laughs> yes, he does. And he loves you. And he wrote this not because he was bored, but because he wants to communicate with you and once you understand how much he loves you, how he sent his son to die for you so that you can have a restored relationship with him, I'm excited for what these next few weeks are gonna hold. Let's pray together, can we? God, we thank you for the complexity of your word. But then also, God, you're just burning simple heart behind it that you wanna be known by people who are lost. And you wanna be the light by which we find our way home. Father, you are good. Help us to open our eyes, to open our ears, to open our hearts to what you might have to say to us through your word. God, you never change. And when it seems like our world is changing every minute, God, you are the rock we can hide ourselves in. We love you. And so we worship you. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of the North Canton Chapel Podcast. If this ministry has blessed you in any way, please share this episode with your friends or spread the word on social media. If you subscribe and leave a five-star review, it goes a long way to helping us make much of Jesus every day to everyone who hears these podcast episodes. You can also donate to this ministry at ncchapel.com forward slash give. Thanks again for joining us. May you go out into your places and spaces, making much of Jesus every day to everyone.